God. And before we turn to hearing it read, before we turn to hearing it preached to us, let's pray for God's blessing upon it. God, there is deep power in your voice, and it has been spoken into the void and has brought life and brought all things. Lord, you have spoken and you have um, shattered your enemies. You have spoken also and given balm to our souls. We pray that as you speak, that you would shake us and that you might um, shake, shake us in, at our, our deepest cores. And so all that is loose, all that is, uh, that ought not to be there would be shaken off from us. And then that you would, you would with your still small voice, quietly rebuild us back into being in the image of Jesus. We pray that your spirit would be with us here in this time, keeping us attentive, being, taking the, the word here and sinking it deep into our hearts and aligning us as whole people in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. We're, we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we are today in uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. And this is God's word. So let's listen and pay careful attention to it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God. The Sermon on the Mount is about being a whole disciple. It's about being a disciple who follows after Jesus with the whole self. 
And as Jesus continues then through this treatise on discipleship, he reiterates that again as they follow after him, that the disciple lives in reliance upon the Father. And last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer. We looked at how it addresses God as a caring and as an approachable Father. And how as the disciple prays, they're to ask for their daily bread from him. Simple provision for the day at hand. This is the sort of reliance that Jesus calls his disciples to. And as we then follow after him, and as we live in this reliance, then this means that disciples are called to give up some things. Most notably, living in reliance upon the Father means giving up our own earthly sense of security in favor of trusting God. Now, reliance acknowledges that I live dependently. It calls me to set aside my sense of security that I trust in for my own personal means. And as it sets this aside, it simultaneously picks up trust in the one then who is secure and who not only has control over all things, but is also good. Now, security isn't wrong. Security touches on our longings for safety and protection, for our well-being and our welfare. When people don't feel secure, they become erratic. There's no anchor or grounding. Worry and despair set in. It's good to have financial security as we plan, as we look to the future. Or security in our relationships, knowing that we are secure in the love of our spouse, or that you are secure in the love of your parents. Job security, home security, not having these things leads to living out of fear and the sense of having to prove oneself. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling secure. It's a good thing for us to have. But like all good things, security can be an idol for us as we bow down to it and as we devote ourselves to it. We make security the highest good when we're really quite powerless to bring it about for us. Some of us have experienced that in the past, whether financially, whether through fires. Some of it have felt it over this past year now and are feeling it with the drought and with everything else that it threatens. See, security isn't wrong on its own, but it poses an impediment to discipleship when we elevate it as the highest good or when we seek after it in the wrong places. And as Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount, he directly addresses where disciples get their security from. And he doesn't wrestle it away from us. He doesn't tear it out of our hands. Jesus doesn't berate us for our misplaced securities that we trust in. No, Jesus persuades us to set aside our sense of control by showing us something that's much better. He's showing us a better way and more security than you or I could ever conjure up. He tells us to trust in the Heavenly Father who cares for his beloved children, to seek after him and his kingdom with our whole selves, and then let him take care of our daily needs. The the disciple's security is found in following after the Heavenly Father and by seeking his kingdom. Jesus' words in our passage this morning pose certain questions for us. Questions that are intended to cause self-reflection in some real personal and practical ways. And the first question is, what do you seek? What do you seek? Verses 19 through 20 addresses laying up treasures. But note, though, that the issue isn't treasures being laid up. The issue is where they're being laid up. 
either on this earth or in heaven. In other words, either treasures that are in the present time or treasures that are future and eternal. Treasures of the current age or in the kingdom of God. Now, why do we store up valuables? Two answers come immediately to mind. One is pleasure. We like having material things. It gives us a sense of pleasure. We find affirmation in what we have. Or they provide a certain enjoyment of life. But we also store up valuables because of security. We tie our security to what we have. Our bank accounts, properties, homes, and land, they are a means of anchoring us and providing some stability for what's ahead. But there's something that's really important that Jesus shows us here. If it's security that you're looking for, it's not found in laying up possessions and valuables and treasures on this earth. All things come to an end. Possessions decay. Valuables become tarnished. Treasures can become stolen or lose value. Bank accounts can dwindle. Stock markets crash. Social security numbers hacked. Disasters strike. Our worlds come crashing down due to personal tragedy. It turns out that the very things which people rely upon to tether them securely in life really aren't themselves secure at all. If it's security, then, that you're looking for, then valuables and finances themselves aren't secure, and they are really powerless to give any sort of meaning or true security that you can trust in. Because also, if security is, is our aim, if earthly security is our aim, at what point do we, do we decide that we're okay? When is enough truly enough? When we feel like we're at that place where we're truly secure with what we have. Particularly if we're aware of all the things that can go dreadfully wrong. The earthly security is never really secure. And the thought of that then, as we're seeking after that, will wreck us. And the alternative though that Jesus gives is treasures in heaven. Where there is ultimate security. Where decay and rust don't exist or where thieves and hackers and Ponzi schemes can't touch them. Because this treasure lies in eternity in the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God itself is the treasure. This is where true security can be found, where it can be banked on. And yet verse 21 is crucial for us to understand our own selves in this. This is pivotal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure lies is where you store them up. And that shows where you are looking. It shows the orientation of your heart. Which way it's directed. The priorities that you seek. What are the things which you tend to trust in for security? Perhaps something, if it were taken away, would shake you deeply and set your heart on uneven footing. Or if you could just get that one thing, then everything would be okay. How we answer these questions is telling about where our heart is oriented. And in turn, how we're living then as disciples of Jesus. Jesus calls disciples to follow after him with their whole selves. To rest and to trust in their father as he did on earth for the sake of the kingdom that is theirs. And he is offering then the very stability that we crave as he invites you and I into his kingdom. A stability and a security which comes through grace 
and is secured by the Father through faith. It's a stability that is opened up for you by the cross where the love of God was shown for sinners. For, shown for you even when you were an enemy of God. Yet if the heart, though, is set on earthly treasures and security, then it's not following Jesus as he calls, nor is it placing its trust in the Father. There's a goodness that we need to see in this kingdom, and it comes down to a matter of wisdom. What is it that you'll choose? Will you choose the temporal, which isn't really secure, or the eternal, which is truly secure? Because in Jesus, you have everything that you will ever need from the Father. You have affirmation as he looks upon his children with the deepest love and satisfaction that he has in his Son. You have the pleasure of knowing God, of experiencing this this deep and intimate goodness and his presence forever. And as we see here also from this passage, you have security. You are kept secure forever. Jesus pleads his blood eternally for you before God. Your Father, who knows all your needs, will provide for you. The sovereign and the all-powerful God has you in his grip right now. And he will lavish security and peace upon you in his kingdom forever. But despite the beauty of all of this, though, despite how much we can affirm this with our lips, it's still hard, though, because there's so much that we don't see right now. There's a reason that earthly treasures pull at our securities. Because there's something that we can see, that we can hold, that we can touch. Maybe even exert a little control over. Security, as Jesus puts it, requires faith. And it calls us to believe his words over our own abilities and our thinking. And discipleship entails just that. Discipleship is learning to trust in what God says and to trust in his character as we put aside our own means of security. But then we have the second question. Who is your master? Who is your master? Jesus then moves into a strange illustration about the eye being the lamp of the body. It's not exactly clear what he's alluding to with this here. There are a couple ideas from the ancient world that he could be referencing, but no matter what exactly it is, we can tell this. The eye forms the connection between the outside and the inside of a person. The eye creates a metaphorical relationship, a connection between what you are oriented towards and what your inner person is. And what you look at is where you are oriented. And we can't help but move in that direction. I know a few of you here are learning how to drive or will be doing so very soon. And when you start learning how to drive, you'll quickly find out that you are not supposed to stare at the things that you're trying to avoid because you will inevitably drift in that direction. And Jesus then says that the eye is like a window that lets light into the body and fills it. Yet the light that enters the body then is tinted by whatever that window or eye is like. So if the eye or the window is clear, then good light comes in. If it's fogged over, then darkness fills the inner being. And the inside person then will function in accordance to whatever light or dark thereof is inside. Now, it sounds strange here as I, as just looking at there, but there are a few nuances for us to get to really understand this. And particularly why it's placed here in the middle of this this whole section. And the first is that the word for healthy in reference to the good eye in verse 22 has had a lot of connotations for these people. 
And one of them was singular or whole. And Jesus is using this with a double meaning, not only describing the clearness or the health of the eye, but also referring to the singularity of focus that it has. In other words, the person filled with light has the eye that is focused and fixed in a whole way. It orients the entire person outside and inside towards the light. And that light then allows it to function properly. Following Jesus and seeking the kingdom of God with the whole person means fixing it in our sight. It means orienting our whole selves around it. So then like driving, what we fix our gaze upon is what we will inevitably drift towards. And that means that a focus that isn't singular, one that isn't wholly oriented towards the kingdom, will inevitably cause us then to waver in different directions. But there's one other nuance from this section to highlight here. Again, this word for healthy or, or, or single also wasn't used in reference throughout the New Testament also to generosity. As the eye is fixed in singular focus upon the light of the kingdom, then the inside is also filled with the light of generosity. Because as the inside of the disciple is filled with the light of the kingdom, then their heart is also illumined and oriented towards what is heavenly over this earth. And then this frees them from having to be overly concerned with the possessions and treasures of this earth, along with the security that is associated with them. They keep their eyes fixed upon the Father. See, the disciple who puts safety and financial security aside and trusts the Father for security is then able to be generous. They don't need to hold tightly to treasures and to material possessions because they have a secure inheritance that is already laid up for them in heaven, kept and guarded by the Father through faith. They're free to be generous, and they can give then as they, out of what they have as they are oriented towards the kingdom of God. They can put aside their own earthly security, and they can trust in the Father and thus then give to others out of what they have already that's laid up for them is lasting. The eye opens up the person to be either filled with light or darkness. They don't mix. It's either one or the other. There's no middle ground. And that's reflected in verse 24 when Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't devote yourself to both God and money. One will have to take precedence. They don't mix. If you want to be a disciple, then God, following God requires a singular focus. And don't think of two masters or as, as in terms of having two jobs. Because if that's the case, of course, you can have two bosses. But no, this reference here is actually being owned. You can only be owned by one or the other. Because only one, God or money, will own your heart. And both of them require total commitment to them. God requires total commitment to himself. He deserves it. He demands it because of that. Jesus is spending the whole Sermon on the Mount lining out how the disciples are to seek after the kingdom of God and the values of God with their whole selves. And meanwhile, riches and money also then require total commitment. Because if you're going to seek security and pleasure from them, then you need to go all in. Because if you've bought into the lie that they will provide that, that they will provide security in an ultimate sense, then what else is there to do than to seek and seek 
and a mass and a mass. You have to be devoted to the one or to the other. But here's the bigger question. Which one do you want to serve? Who is the better master? That's a question for all of us here. What kind of master is material gain? One that will take and take and never be satisfied. One that ultimately can't be trusted because it could be here today, but then be gone tomorrow. But what kind of master is God? One who demands our entire being, yet also loves to give and is generous. God gives and gives. He has even given his very son then, so that the demands, his demands then, of righteousness would actually be satisfied. Not that we would have to satisfy him. And he did that then so that you then could be secure, that you could be free. God's a good, gracious master. He's forgiving as opposed to the the wolf pack mentality that dominates the financial world. So who do you want to serve? Which one? Which is the better master, God or money? Choose wisely as you answer that. The third question then is how will I live? How will I live? In one sense, this is the natural question of response. How am I to live and survive in a physical world if the kingdom is my focus? How am I expected to live and to make my ends meet? That's an honest question. It takes seriously this wholehearted, singular focus call. And it's one that's anticipated by Jesus here. And that's where he gets to verse 25. He moves on to addressing anxiety. Because he calls us with some real, honest, anxiety-provoking words. And he says this, don't be anxious about your life. I say, sure, that sounds easy enough, Jesus. But this is why, this is why he says in verses 32 and 33, your heavenly Father knows your needs. And then 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things then will be added to you. Disciples relate to God as their heavenly father who knows their needs and cares deeply about them. And that means that he will fill every need that they have. And so Jesus renews the call to seek first, primarily of first importance over everything else, the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And then your heavenly father will take care of the rest. And when we focus only upon our bodily needs being filled, we are assuming that this is all there is to life. We may not mean it. In fact, likely we don't. But if that's the case, though, then life is extremely sad. Yet what does Jesus say? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? One of the common confessions that you hear people admit at the end of their lives is, I wish I had done things differently. It's never, I wish I had earned more money or I wish I had acquired more property. It's, I wish I had taken more time to do the things that really matter. I wish I hadn't focused so much on work, but had taken more time for my family. See, we we miss out on the depth and the beauty and the wonder of life if we are preoccupied with our own security and our own needs being filled. Because we also miss out that the deepest part of life is found in the kingdom of God. We miss out on life in communion with God. We miss out on life lived in communion with others and for loving and blessing one another. We ultimately miss out also on the greatest thing, that life in the kingdom 
as it was meant to be lived in glory. Seek to be a faithful disciple of the kingdom. Your father will take care of the rest. Because if you have God as your father, then you can trust in his care for you. Jesus says, look at the birds. Your heavenly father feeds and provides for them. They have no trouble eating. If your heavenly father does that for a bird, then why wouldn't he do anything different for his children? He cares about his creation. He's benevolent to it. But the care and benevolence that he has there is, is pales in comparison to the deep love that he has for his children. The father didn't send his son to live and to suffer and die for the birds. He did that for his people to make them his children because he loves them so. And he says, look at the wildflowers. Aren't they beautiful? Springtime in Sonoma County is like the greatest because of the wildflowers that bloom and the grasses that grow here. I don't know if there's a better, a more beautiful place on earth at springtime here. The brilliant orange of the poppies, the purple of the lilacs, the white of the daisies, the, the yellows, everything else that grows. And then all of it then spattered across the green, against the, the green canvas of fresh grass. God has clothed the grasses and the flowers with a remarkable beauty. Even down to the very petals. Have you noticed the details of, 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 the, of the petals of a poppy? Have you ever noticed like how fine they are and how beautiful they are? The textures, it's like fine silk. Yet what does Jesus say? He says, if God has clothed his creation with such majesty and such rich care, don't you think he also knows how to care and provide for his children? The father has already given his children so much. He's given us his son. Do you think he'll stop there? Do you think he'll be stingy or withhold from us? No, because he's already given what is absolutely deserved and which is the highest gift possible. Of course, then he will fill in all the details. And so we come to him then with a quiet and a confident trust that he will fill our needs. We don't have to coerce him. We don't have to convince him. He knows all of our needs, and we can trust that he will fill them as a good father does. That's part of the Lord's Prayer that we looked at last week. Give us this day our daily bread. We ask him daily for our needs and for our sustenance just for that day there, and then we come back over and over asking expectantly from him. Understanding God as Father means coming to him with a trust and a reliance because it knows his character. He loves his children in Christ, and he loves to give. Now, there are a few stipulations to make here. There might be a few objections that some of you might have about this, so let me answer a few, that, at least that I anticipated. First, this is no excuse for laziness. A God taking care of our needs doesn't mean that everything will automatically drop out of the sky. It doesn't mean that we get to play Elijah and sit on the, the, on, on the couch and expect God to then feed us by the ravens going to the fridge and then bringing us back food, coming in through our windows. No, even though God provides for the birds, they still go out and they seek the food that God gives them. It's part of the means that he uses. God ordinarily takes care of our needs through means, by providing work, by providing financial assistance, benevolence funds, whatever it is. These are all part of God's providence for us. But second, 
This is in reference to our needs, not our wants. Sometimes those are the same. A lot of times they aren't. I'm not going to press into it, but you all know what I mean. But third, this means that we can still plan for the future. Part of God's provision sometimes comes through our own planning ahead and saving. Again, God works through means. So that where our own planning or saving then runs contrary to Jesus' words, if those plans or if those accounts then become the source of security that we have. And at that point, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're truly seeking after? But last, and most profound, God's fatherly provision for his people doesn't negate real trials and troubles which arise. Jesus' words are only about alleviating our anxieties, not our troubles. There very well still be may, re, may be real troubles and real troublesome situations that cause fear which come at us in life. I think his final words in verse 34 make that clear. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is realistic about life in a fallen world which still has troubles. The Beatitudes that we looked at at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount make that clear. Disciples will be persecuted. Disciples will mourn on and on. But even as troubles and worrisome situations arise, his words address our fears and our anxieties. Don't be concerned with whatever tomorrow might bring. Focus on today. Look to your Father to come and to meet you in whatever ways that you need just for the day. How will I live? That question there. How will I live? But yet there's also a different way to ask that question. How will I live? Not in terms of how I'll have the means to live, but how will I live in response to God as being my giving Father? Friends, if you're in Christ, and if you're a disciple, you don't have to live a life of anxiety. You don't have to tie yourself to the things of this life as your security. Because the cross has set you free from all of that. And it's placed you then into the fatherly care, the hands of God. And so we are freed from having to devote ourselves to seeking security in life. And God enables us then to live wholeheartedly in pursuit of his kingdom and of his righteousness. And as we learn more about God the Father, and as we learn more about his self-giving character, even to the point of giving his son for us, then we may, then we may grow, at that point then, may we grow more in our trust of him. May we have a deeper sense of his secure care for us. May we also hold what we have in this life loosely and in pursuit of the kingdom. Let's pray before this God who loves to give, who cares for us. Father, there are many anxieties that many of us have, whatever they are, about our various needs that we have, our misplaced securities that we trust in rather than keeping our eyes focused on you. Father, in those times, would you show us your care and your character? Show us that you can be trusted, that you are fatherly. Show us that you are a rock that we can stand secure on no matter what floods threaten to overwhelm us. We ask that you would loosen our grip on the things that we want to cling to instead of you and hold tightly to us in those moments too. Let us know that your hold that you have upon us will never loosen, that you have us in all times, despite the way that that it may not look like it in, in that particular moment. 
And with that, then, would you provide for our, our needs daily? Sustain us with every, every need that we have, even the, at the most basic level. Keep us secure in your love. And thank you for your deepest provision and your care for us in Jesus. Uh, because of that, we can have the greatest confidence as we trust in you. Let that, let that carry us this week. Let that be the wind in our sails if we feel trouble or anxiety or are faced with the very real needs that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the sign, the place where God continues to provide for us. Uh, he provides for our daily needs.